Well, good morning, everybody. I got here so early, I didn't hear, see the sun this morning, but I heard a rumor that it was out for a little while, so I'm very, very excited to hear that. How many of you had a comfort object, uh, psychologists also call it a lovey or a transition object? How many of you had one when you were little? Okay, yeah, that, that fits the statistics, say about half of children have some kind of comfort object. You weren't a bad person if you didn't have one. Just some, some do and some don't. Um, both of my daughters actually had a lovey. My younger daughter had a blanket. It was a handmade little uh, yellow and blue striped blanket knitted by my older sister. And one time when we were on vacation, sadly, the blanket got left at a hotel. And despite our best efforts, we could not retrieve it. And she's still in therapy about that uh, today. Uh, my other daughter had this little bear. This is Bowie. She named him Bowie. You look at those eyes. Many secrets were told to Bowie over the years, I'm quite sure. And Samantha loved Bowie so much, she used to um, suck her thumb in a certain way and hold him in a certain way. So now, rather than being a, what was once a very fluffy, white, beautiful bear, Kind of looks like a rat now. It's not, it's not real great. So you would think we would have learned our lesson, but we were on another vacation, and we were coming back from Wisconsin, and we stopped in Rockford for some gas and went into a gas station, and my girls and I went in to get a snack. And when we got home, it was already dark, and then we realized we had no buoy. So Warren figured out maybe it was the gas station. He called some numbers, found it. They said, yes, we have this thing um, <laughs> in our gas station. And so because he loves his little girl so much, because she was inconsolable, she said she could never sleep without buoy. I had a backup buoy. You know, that's a smart thing to do. I had like a brand new one. But if you know anything about loveys, that simply will not do. The new one doesn't work. And so dad got in the car and did a three-hour round trip to Rockford to retrieve Bowie. Now, most children abandon their lovey um, by about the age of six. Samantha took Bowie to college. So I, I think that says something about her parenting. I don't know what it says exactly. <clears throat> but when you look at something like this, it doesn't look very lovable, does it? It's certainly not very beautiful. It looks pretty ragged. John Orberg, in his book, Love Beyond Reason, talks about the lovey that his sister had. It was a rag doll. And he tells us two principles. He says, first of all, we are, all of us human beings, rag dolls. We are broken in some ways. We are unlovely in some ways. We are wounded. But the second piece of news is pretty awesome. God loves every one of his rag dolls. And he looks at us, and he sees our raggedness. He sees our brokenness. He knows all about it and he loves us anyway. In fact, we are not defined in God's eyes by our raggedness. He sees us as a treasure, and he delights in us. In fact, he sees us as priceless, and his love for us is not because he has to love us. It's because he wants to love us. One of the first verses I learned in the Bible as a little girl was, we love him because he first loved us. He came in first. He loved us first, and it's freely given. God loved you since before the day you were born. He loves you beyond measure with an outrageous, unconditional kind of love. But when you hear the word God, when you think about God, do you primarily think about the word yes or the word no? Some of us grew up with a more uh, punitive picture of God. 
Like he's the one who sort of pounces on us when we make a mistake or he keeps a record of our sins, chalks it up. We see a God who lacks joy and delight and freedom. But that is not at all the God of the Bible. That is not an accurate picture of who God is. And today we're going to see that our God is all about yes. So to get us started, I want to invite you to get a Bible from the seat pocket in front of you or under your chair. And we're going to go to the book of 2 Corinthians, the very first chapter of 2 Corinthians, page 803. Page 803 in those Bibles, if you can find that. I want to give you a little bit of context here. Um, this is the second letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. And just before the verses that we're going to read... There was apparently some miscommunication or some confusion or whatever about a visit, a second visit that Paul was going to make to these people. And I think he was trying to address it because he was wondering if they thought that his yes didn't mean yes, that maybe he wasn't a man of his word. So he's trying to clear up what happened there. And then he moves to this section where he talks about God's yes. So we're picking it up in verse 18. But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him the amen is spoken to us by the glory of God. Paul is saying that our God does not vacillate. He's not fickle or random or arbitrary. And today we're going to look at the ways God keeps his promises and at the ways that he declares yes to us, at least a few of them. We'd be here all day if we were going to describe all the ways that God says yes. But we're also going to look and see that God does have some no's and try to wrestle with that a little bit. I want to tell you right up front that to learn to live in God's yes to learn to embrace it, to own it for yourself, is the challenge of a lifetime. Mm. To trust it, that it could possibly be true, and that it's for you and for me. Well, there's so many ways that God says yes. I want to start with creation. Our God says yes to us through the breathtaking wonder and beauty of our earth. <laughs> All over the place, there are yeses. Now, it's a little hard to see in February in Chicago. I get it. It's hard to discover those yeses. So I want to show you some pictures. I'm going to start with some flowers. I don't know if you remember what flowers look like. Uh, try not to cry. Um, we're going to show about four photos of flowers and the detail and the beauty. Did you ever think about the fact that much of creation is not utilitarian? It doesn't always have a rhyme or reason to some of the beauty that God made. It's not always logical. Think about some of the animals God's made. Some of them are pretty wacky looking and just fun. Why would God make a world with so much that doesn't have a logical purpose? Well, writer Annie Dillard says it's because the creator loves pizzazz. I love that. Our creator loves pizzazz. And so we have sunsets and waterfalls and raspberries and watermelon and avocados and anteaters and peacocks and mountain ranges. And sometimes all you can do in response to God's yes is say, wow. Amen. Wow. He says yes to us in every flower and every creek, every starry night sky. He says yes in the beauty of every season, even a gentle winter snowfall. It's his nature to create and give and delight 
for no reason at all except love. And sometimes you look at what he made and you just have to say, now you're just showing off, God. It's just so incredible. Creation reveals God's yes, if only we have eyes to see it. Another way God says yes is through people. Okay, maybe not all people. Some are a little crabby and annoying. But think (laughs) back to some of the people in your life, some of the teachers and coaches and family and friends, maybe even the kindness of a stranger. Every time a friend really listens to you, God is saying yes. Every time a little child crawls up into your lap, every time a grandparent tells a story, What about a person who believed in you more than you could believe in yourself? Maybe someone gave a vision to you of who you might become or what you might do in this world. That's God's way of saying yes. I don't know if you saw this on the news or on YouTube last week, but even if you saw it several times as I did, you're going to see it again because this inspires me so much. This is a fifth grade teacher in Charlotte, North Carolina, who has a special handshake for every one of his students, which numbers over 40 students. They each have a unique handshake. Take a look at Barry White, not that Barry White, a different Barry White. Uh, This teacher, take a look at this. come in with you know situation at home that's not ideal so therefore when they come into school I want this to be their sanctuary like they're, they're I want them to be excited to come to school because <clears throat> before I'm able to deliver a substantial amount of content to them they have to buy into me they have to invest in the teacher itself I don't know you might you might be ready but one thing that's going to stick with them forever is how did Mr. White treat me when I was in this grade. It kind of draws them in, and once I have them in and have their trust and, you know, they're invested in me, then I can deliver my content, you know, see the academic side of it um, increase. So that's really what, um, that's really why I do it, man, to bring joy to them. I mean, I feel like every student needs a little bit of joy in their lives. It doesn't matter what it is, every student. been one of the biggest things for me, like those messages from um, other educators. I'm talking about past, about 20, 50 years in the game. Oh my God, I have tears in my eyes. I can't, I can't wait to go to school. I'm going to try this for my students. I mean, that was so amazing to me. I'm all about bringing joy to people's lives, man, and inspiring others to do so. So hopefully everybody can start doing it in their classroom, you know, make it a big thing, worldwide thing, something cool. Come on, come on. Isn't that fabulous? Oh, so great. He is saying yes to every student. He's saying, you are an individual. I celebrate you. I treat you with respect and dignity. I have an idea. I think Pastor Jarrett should do a special handshake with every person in Seoul City. I mean, there's only like 1,300 of us or something. How hard could that be? I think that would be really special. But this brings me to the fact that it reflects the heart of God that Barry White's yes is so personal. It's so individual and personal. 
You see, sometimes we talk about our favorite verse in the Bible being John 3.16. It's a wonderful verse. It says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And many of us can buy into that. He loved the world. But does he love me individually, uniquely? And what I've learned is that God really does notice and see every single one of us as a unique person. We each have a unique relationship with God that might be different from the person sitting next to you because we're a unique creation. The most frequent promise in the Bible is that God will be with us. And I think that's because he knew we would have trouble trusting that or buying into it, that he would be with us. Now, have you observed the difference between being in the same room with another person and them actually being with you? When I'm sitting in the family room with my husband Warren and he's in his big chair and he's got like four remotes and his iPad and all his work papers and he's watching something, I don't really call that being with me. So if I want to talk to him about something that's really important, I'll say, could you give me your eyes for just a moment? Could you look at me? Because I want to know that I have his undivided, undistracted attention. And that's what every single one of us long for. We want someone to give us their wholehearted attention, and that's the kind of presence that God gives to each of us. A huge aspect of God's yes is his undivided attention. Take a look at this blessing found in Numbers chapter 6. It says, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. When someone's face is shining, when they turn their face toward us, it is an expression of absolute delight. It's the kind of shining face I reveal when one of my daughters is being especially kind to someone, or when I see a friend excelling in her gifts. And God says, my face is shining toward you. I delight in you. I notice you, every detail. Jesus said the very hairs on our head are numbered. For some of you, that's not complicated, but for others of us with hair, you know, that's kind of a big deal. You are not just a part of the massive human race. Like the students in Barry White's fifth grade class, God has like a special handshake just for you. You are unique to him. Now, it's a terrible thing to think that we might not be seen, that we might actually be invisible. In his classic book, The Invisible Man, Ralph Ellison wrote about what it was like for him to feel unseen as an African-American man in white culture. This is what he wrote. He said, I am an invisible man. I'm a man of substance, of flesh and bone, fiber and liquids, and I might even be said to possess a mind. I am invisible, understand, simply because people refuse to see me. And my friends, I think this is at the root of so much of the violence and trouble in our world today, because so many people don't feel seen. They don't feel respected as an individual. They don't feel known. And because of that, we act out in very destructive ways. There was a woman in the Bible who felt invisible. Her name was Hagar. She was an Egyptian woman. The story is told in the first book of the Bible, Genesis. And you've probably heard about Abraham and Sarah. They were an elderly couple who were childless. They couldn't seem to conceive a child. And yet God had promised them that their descendants were going to multiply and inhabit the earth and one day be God's special people. But they couldn't see this promise coming true. And so Sarah 
had an idea. It's a little odd, but she says, Abraham, why don't you sleep with Hagar, the maidservant, and maybe she can get pregnant and have a child. Now, it was her idea, but then when Hagar got pregnant, Sarah was livid. She was so angry. She despised Hagar. And Hagar ran. She ran in misery to the desert. She was probably weeping and crying. And, and while she was in the desert, an angel of the Lord visited her. And this angel of the Lord said, Hagar, God sees your misery. God, God sees you here all alone in the desert. He sees you. And you're going to have a child. You're gonna, it's going to be okay. And then something magnificent happens. Look at this uh, from Genesis chapter 16. Hagar said, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. Hagar gave God a new name that he never had before. That name is El Roy. I asked them to put the word up so you don't think it's like the southern name, El Roy. That's not what I'm saying. This is a Hebrew name, El Roy, and it means the God who sees. She says, isn't this amazing? God sees me. I thought I was all alone here in the desert with my pain, but God sees me and God sees you. Can you accept the truth today that you are not invisible, that God knows every detail of your story and of your life, and he sees you in all your raggedness, and he loves you anyway? He loves you and he treasures you. Look at these beautiful words from Isaiah and receive them for yourself, not for someone else. Receive them for yourself. God says, I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. For I am the Lord your God. You are precious. You are precious and honored in my sight. And I love you. What would our days look like if we started standing in the mirror in the morning when we're not feeling too beloved and reviewing these kinds of words? I am precious in God's sight. He sees me. He treasures me. He's going to be with me today all day long. Now, if you're anything like me, I have to admit to you that there are some moments when I wish I was invisible to God. Moments I'm not proud of. Moments when I would like to hide. Moments when I would think, God, I hope you didn't hear what I just said. Or I hope you didn't see what I just did. Or I hope you don't know what I just thought. And those moments are called sin. This is when I distance myself from God. Because he is holy and perfect. And now I am behaving in ways that create a wall between us. And I feel shame and I want to hide. This is the point right here where God's most significant yes takes place, right here. The full extent of God's love is shown when we're at our most ragged, unlovely place because God says there's a price to be paid for sin and I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to provide a solution. And so he sent Jesus to the cross to pay the price for you and me that we could not pay the Apostle Paul, who had a lot to be ashamed of, he had killed Christians, he, was, he called himself the worst of sinners, he could never get over the wonder of God's grace. Look at these words from his letter to the Romans. He says, you see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, while we were at our worst, Christ died for the ungodly. 
Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. While we were ragged and broken and filled with shame and guilt, Christ died for us. And the incredible news of God's yes is that he came to this planet. He sent Jesus with a mission. And that mission was to make things right, to satisfy the demands of justice and to allow us to be reunited, to be reconciled, to be rejoined with God the Father. You know, when you love a human being, it can be very difficult to express it in words. Uh, my younger daughter had a birthday a few weeks ago and I was trying to write her card and uh, everything I could think of to say just felt pretty lame. In our family, sometimes we say it this way, I love you to the moon and back. And when that seems lightweight, we'll say, I love you to the moon and back a gazillion trillion times. Some parents look at their little ones and they say, does mommy or daddy love you this much? The child says, no. Love you this much? No. Love you this much? No. I love you this much. So big. And that's what God says to you and me. If you want to know how much I love you, look at the cross. I love you this much. I did something about the distance between us because I can't imagine an eternity without you. And so I paid the price. And if you will simply receive this gift, say yes back to me, we'll be united. You're my son. You're my daughter. And I treasure you. I love you this much. God sees us with absolute clarity. He sees us. There's nothing that we're really, we think we're hiding. There's nothing we're hiding. He sees us with absolute clarity. And then he says, if you want to see my love for me, look at the cross. Now, when we talk about the S word, sin, it begs the question, doesn't God sometimes say no? And this series is all about yes. But like, what about the Ten Commandments? What about the other guidelines in Scripture? Clearly, there's some no's in there. And there are. But here's what I've learned after many decades of, of following Jesus. I'm so very grateful that all of God's no's are rooted in his yes. All of God's no's are rooted in his yes. Every time God gives us a command or a guideline, an instruction, it can be traced back to God's fundamental yes. God says no, for example, to envy and comparison because God says yes to being content with who we are and what we have. God says no to greed and selfishness because God says yes to living in moderation and giving generously. God says no to drunkenness or abusing our bodies because God says yes to health and to joyful celebration that won't be hurtful. God says no to getting into serious debt because God says yes to the freedom that comes, the, the ability to sleep at night when you have some savings in the bank and you're able to give. God says no to sex outside of marriage, not because God hates sex. God thought it up. It was his idea. But God says yes to the holy wonder and beauty of intimacy in the safe context of a marriage commitment. God says no to lying including alternative facts, because God says yes. God says yes 
to being people of our word, people of integrity, whose yes means yes and no means no. God says no to injustice and abuse of privilege and power because God says yes to being an advocate for the marginalized and the widow and the orphan and the foreigner. So every time you see a no in scripture, dig around a little deeper and discover the yes underneath it, the why of why God is giving you that guideline. This is just like human parenting. No good parent says yes to everything. If you do, you're going to raise little monsters that are running around. It's going to be awful. If you love your children, you give them guidelines. You give them some boundaries. God says, will you trust me that even though some of my no's are countercultural, some of my no's, your intuition says, well, that couldn't be right. Will you trust me that my ways are higher than your ways, that I actually might know because I created you the best way for you to live, because I long for you to have joy and freedom and peace and a lack of worry in your life. All of my no's are rooted in my fundamental yes. So I have an assignment for you this week. If you're on a film or television set, at the end of the day, or maybe sometimes the very next morning, they do something called watching the dailies. And basically what they're doing is watching everything they shot that day, checking it out, making sure they don't have to fix anything, make, you know, kind of celebrating, high-fiving the good stuff they shot, and deciding if anything needs to be corrected. Well, I want to give you a challenge twice this week, either late at night if you're a night person, or early in the morning if you're a morning person. Think back to the previous day the whole day, like scroll it like a movie in your mind and try to pay attention to all the ways God said yes to you. Think about anything you noticed in creation. Think about human beings who crossed your path, who showed you some kindness or you know, listened well. Think about moments that you wanted to hide from God and that you had to confess something and that he forgave you and celebrate every one of those yeses. Pay attention to them and realize how many times a day is God saying yes to me. I've told you in the past a little bit about my dad. He passed away uh, three years ago now at the age of 92. Um, my dad grew up on the south side of Chicago um, without a lot of money in a family of three boys. His father was an alcoholic, um, used to work at the stockyards in Chicago. His mother was often overwhelmed trying on so little money to raise these three little guys. I'm told that at one point she tried to take her own life. Um, my father's family didn't go to church, but he had an aunt, and it was an aunt that I met when I was young, um, my great aunt, Ellen. Uh, Ellen was single her whole life. She was an immigrant from Sweden, and she uh, hung out with my dad's family quite a bit, and she uh, offered to take those uh, little boys to church. Uh, she said, you know, if any of you want to go, I'll take you to Sunday school. And my dad's brothers were not interested. My dad was the middle son, and he said, I I'll go. And so he would go to Sunday school with Aunt Ellen. And he has two memories of that. One is that they would walk into this room, and it was filled with little red chairs. The children would all sit in little red chairs. And the second memory was singing the song, Jesus Loves Me. It's a very simple song. Some of you might have heard it when you were young. I learned it as a little girl, and the lyrics go like this. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. 
Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. And my father didn't really commit his life to Jesus as a little boy. That didn't happen until he was in his 20s after World War II. But the seeds of his understanding of God's love, the seeds of his faith were sown on those little red chairs. And later on, he remembered what he learned as a little guy. When my dad was in the final weeks of his life in the hospital, we would take turns sitting with him and visiting him. And if I was all alone with him, sometimes I would sing to him. I fear that I hastened his death because I sing so poorly. Um, but I would uh, try to sing, sing some songs to him. And one of them that I often sang as I would hold his brown spotted hand was Jesus Loves Me. And he couldn't talk anymore at that point, but he could hear and he got a big smile on his face as I sang in the middle of the night on about the night before he died, actually. And then at his funeral, his great-grandchildren lined up in front of the, the room and they sang, Jesus Loves Me. I told my daughters the story of the red chairs and of Aunt Ellen, and Samantha wrote a poem about it. And I'm gonna read you the poem, but first I have to explain a couple details. The poem mentions my parents were married for 68 years. The interesting thing about that is they were engaged six days after they met. Apparently that was common during World War II. I used to tease my dad, he probably was engaged to three or four women and then he came home and decided which one he was actually gonna marry. Um, he was educated at what was then called the Illinois Institute of Technology um, to become an engineer. He was a fighter pilot in World War II and the Korean War. And uh, one more thing, uh, he had a blue chair that Samantha remembers in all his elderly years. He sat in a big old blue easy chair and uh, she writes about that as well. I think that'll help you follow this poem. It's called Little Red Chair. In a little red chair, a little boy sat where Aunt Ellen had dropped him until she would return. In a little red chair, a little boy learned, Jesus loves me, this I know. This he came to know, the boy in the chair, and he sang along to his new favorite song because singing it might make it true and because it's by far the most catchy of all the songs that were taught to red chairs in those days. Was his voice hollow even then, a little boy with my grandfather's voice? Little ones to him belong, lifting up little voices from little red chairs, not knowing anything of the chairs to come. At the Illinois Institute of Numbers, where he'd worked to study and study to work and sit in a stiff chair and prove that he knew enough to sit in a cockpit, a small chair, severe chair with a dangerous view entrusted to him a chair he'd probably only know the edge of, like the wooden pews he'd barely touch, giddy as he'd be when he'd say, I do, to a woman he barely knew, but would sit with in movie theater seats, at booths, on benches, car seats and couches, in waiting room chairs and upon kitchen stools for 68 years to come. His chair at the table with three girls and a son. His seat behind the wheel on a sticky road trip folding chairs at the receptions of the weddings of his babies, hospital chairs where he'd first hold the babies of his babies, a padded seat in the dining room of a retirement buffet until finally a light blue chair 
that slightly sways, from which he will watch whatever sport is in season, next to his bride, who has never not been in season. But he didn't know this then, sitting boldly from the first chair because Aunt Ellen told him to, because the Bible told him so. Is this then what is meant by a legacy of faith? Someone called Aunt Ellen sat a little boy in a little red chair, and he learned, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. And he sang it right from there until he knew it by heart and could sing it from any chair he would occupy. Because singing it, he found it to be true. And so he would sing it to his babies in their high chairs, and they would sing it to their babies in their car seats, and they would all sing it back to him when he could no longer sit up. But this he knew. Jesus loves me. Yes. 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 And even now, Aunt Ellen's drop kids in little red chairs, and Grandpa sings their song before a big red throne. This I know. I don't know when you were little if anyone shared the truth with you that Jesus loves you. Some of us had that gift and some of us didn't. Some of us are, as adults, trying to figure that out. But I want you to know today that God says yes to you. He loves you with an outrageous love. And even as we're sitting here right now, little ones are upstairs in Soul City Kids, and they're learning the most important truth they'll ever learn, that Jesus loves them uniquely individually treasures them, that they are his beloved. That is who we are. And it's the challenge of a lifetime for you to receive that love and embrace it and own it for yourself. Would you pray with me? Gracious Father, how we thank you this morning that you are the God of yes. Help us pay attention to your yes in creation and in other people and certainly at the cross, God. Thank you for that ultimate yes, that sacrifice for every one of us. I pray that whatever hurdle individuals have to get over, whatever obstacles are in their way of receiving this yes, I pray that you will help them break it down step by step and be able to trust and believe that you love them outrageously that you forgive them and that you want to walk with them through this life, that you have guidelines for them for their good and that your ways are higher than our ways. We thank you for the privilege of being in a place and in a country where we can learn freely about your love and we pray that we will reflect that love to others who cross our path. And we want to pause just for a moment and pray for the little ones upstairs that they will understand your love and receive it at a very young age and begin a lifelong journey of saying yes back to you. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, we pray. Amen. Well, when the team told me that this happens to be the one Sunday a month that we're going to celebrate communion, I couldn't imagine a, a more appropriate weekend to do that. So we're going to have an opportunity to participate in that sacrament in just a moment. This is a chance for us to remember God's yes to us and to say yes back, to thank him, to say, I want to say yes with my very life. And this is open, even if you're visiting, this is open to anyone who has said yes 
back to Jesus. The hosts are going to distribute a tray, and on there is a gluten-free uh, cracker and a little cup of juice. And all you have to do is take uh, one of those, both of those, and hold on to them until we're going to participate together. If you're investigating Christianity, you're not quite ready for this, that's okay. Just let the plate go by you. And here's what I'd like to counsel you to do with the time that you have while everybody's being served. We're not going to do any more singing right, just right now. We're going to give you a little space. Sometimes when I have this opportunity before communion, I feel a need to confess, to come clean to God about something, to say, here's something you know, that I'm not real proud of, God. Would you please forgive me for that? Sometimes I use this time to remember. That's what he asks us to do, to, to say, I'm going to picture what you did for me, and I'm going to thank you. I'm going to review in my mind that you were crucified for me. And sometimes you just want to sit still and allow the love of God to wash over you. Maybe just sit there for a moment and think about those words. You are my beloved. You are precious in my sight. And receive it. Receive it from God. So we will distribute the elements and then we'll all participate together.